Okay. Well, everybody knows that in the parish of Pinchas, B'nai Yisrael are counted once again. They counted in the beginning of the book of Bamidbar, in the parish of Bamidbar and Naso, and they counted again. They counted again um, in the parish of Pinchas as a kind of introduction to the entree of Bnei Yisrael into Eretz Yisrael. Since the land of Israel was divided up by Mishpacha, families were the ones who inherited the land. It was important to count the families in each tribe. That's how the land eventually was all divided up. I say this to you, even though it's obviously not clear what Moshe Rabbeinu had to do the counting after all the division of the land was done at the time of Yoshua Binun, after the conquest of Eretz Israel. Nevertheless, that's what the Torah says. La'elu te'chalek is That the land of Israel, which you are about to enter and about to conquer, is to be divided up by family to the Jews who left Mitzrayim and came to Eretz Yisrael. Now the Nitziv, in his commentary to the Torah that's called HaMekdabar, the Nitziv writes an introduction, writes an introduction to the book of Bamidbar, which tries to deal with the problem of the counting. Tries to deal with the problem of the counting. And this is on the sheet. And I'd like to go through the introduction with you because I feel that it's uh, uh, more than insightful. It's more than insightful. It's very, uh, um, it's very important. So this is how he starts. You see the first line? The lines are numbered. So on the first line, Yoma the Ode. In other words, it, in the in the Tanaitic sources, in the Mishnah in Yoma, Rabbi Hanina ben Gamliel in the Gemara and Sota calls it Chumash Pikudim v'Kachatav Bahag. So the Bahag, the the Mishnah in Yoma is about the Kriya on Yom Hakipurim, and there the Mishnah calls it. The Mishnah calls the book of Bamidbar Sefer Pekudim. The word Pekudim means countings. It's the book of countings. Now you remember. It's the book also of the Chait of Moshe and Aaron. And it's the book of Korach. And it's the book of Bilam. And there are a lot of exciting things that happen in the book of Bamidbar. And if you would classify and say, what's the least exciting thing that happens in the book of Babidbar? So you'd say, well, the Jews were counted. I mean, can you imagine anything less exciting than that? But the Mishnah and the Gemara, and then it's copied over by the Bahag, right? The Bahag says that, uh, that the book of Babidbar is correctly called by Fazal Sefer Pikudim. Sefer Pikudim. Why Pikudim? Let's see, let's 
Shevazeh HaSeker. It says, though the Chachamim said the most important thing that happened in the book of Bamidbar is two countings. Pekudim, plural. The B'nai Yisrael counted twice. So here you have, you know, like people have different ways of looking at things. We would go through the book of Bamidbar and we'd say, the most boring thing in the book is the counting, how many there were and how, what the number was and what difference does it make to me today how many people there were in the tribe of Ruve or Shimon. I mean, would be, I'd be very happy if the Torah said they were counted and the summer was or whatever it was. I mean, what do I have to know anything about that? That's us. That's how we would look at it. I mean, we might not admit it in public, but that's what we would say. Whereas Chachamim said, Sefer Pekudim. Wow, this is really something. The Jews were counted not once, but twice. So, uh, Yoter Misha'ar Dvarim Shem Yuchadim B'zasefer He says the Pekudim, the counting, is more important than all the other things that are brought in this book that are also important. This is Kimo, Amiraglim, Ubirkat Bil'am, Va'od Harbeg, Mishum Dikar Zehasefer Kudim. And now the, the Tzif has a theory. And he says, he says like when you, you look at the book of Bamidbar, you could look at it as being a series of disconnected events. Like when Korach happened, right? You didn't know that Bilam would happen. And when Moshe Rabbeinu did that Aaron sinned somehow, so you didn't know what would happen with Benot Tzolabchad. Nothing is connected to anything else, the way we understand it. Right? This story happened, then that story happened, then the other story happened. I mean, but the, 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 the Tzib looks at it differently. And he has a theory. He, the Tzib, has a theory. And this is his theory. I am on... I'm at the end of the line three. Mishum ikar ze asefehu hamachlif mishne halichot umishane halichot imashem lechaye haolam meaz sheigiu leeretz Yisrael. Now here, this is like a little bit. Uh, if he was in Israel in the third grade, they would correct the Hebrew a little bit, but we won't do that. He says, what it means is, he says, what Bamidbar is about is a change in the lifestyle of B'nai Yisrael. They lived one way, and then they lived a different way. So what is he talking about? Mid haderech shalchu Bamidbar. When they left Mitzrayim and went in the Midbar, Shebamidbar hayum mitnahagim b'midat tiferet shehalach liyamin Moshe shehu legamre lemaala mehalichat hateva. Tiferet is a a word, right? It means glory, 
But of course, all the Jews know, as I've told you several times from counting Sfirah to Omer, that Tiferet is one of the Sfirot. A Sfirah, if I had to explain it, is a, a way of describing some aspect of God which is known to us. So the first aspects that we understand something about are Chesed, Gvura, and Tiferet. Chesed, loving kindness, Gvura is power, and Tiferet, Tiferet is Torah. Tiferet is Torah. So along comes the Ritzif. Like, without writing a, a long story. And he said, what was it that exemplified or that personified the existence of B'nai Yisrael more than anything else in the Midbar? So the Ritzif says, that was the Torah. They left Mitzrayim and they received the Torah. What does that mean? What does that give them that they didn't have any place else? He says, he gave them a clarity about what God wanted from them. So you can ask me, Akasha, but what about Chet of Egel, and what about Korach, and what about Bilop? How come B'nai Yisrael couldn't straighten it out? So you know, there's some kind of an answer. Like sometimes when you get a lot of light, you don't see things so well. Right? That everybody understands. But here we have to know, after the point of the Nitzv, the Nitzv says, look, B'nai Yisrael in the desert were living in the world of Tiferet. And they had Moshe Rabbeinu. And that means that if they didn't understand something, they could ask and get a perfect commentary or interpretation. So this is what he says. Write the fifth line again. The Midat Tiferet. Shalakli min Moshe Yitiberet is on the right side. Shehul Gamre Lemala Balichot HaTeva. People who are on that level are not subject to the to the uh, uh, changes in nature. That's how we are. If it rains, it bothers us. If there's heat, it bothers us. If it, it snows, it's no good. If there's an earthquake, it's about a no good. Right? That nature is not something that we can easily deal with. But if you're into Tiferet, if you're in the Torah, then you don't have anything to do with Teva, with nature. Uve Eretz Yisrael halchu b'derecha Teva b'sitrei hashgachat malchut shamayim baruchu. But Eretz Yisrael, there was a difference. In Eretz Yisrael, they saw malchut. Malchut is the last of the Spirot, right? Chesed, Gevur, Deferet, Meisachot, Yisod, Malchut. In Eretz Yisrael, they lived in a different world. They lived in the world of Malchut. They lived in the world of, of Malchut. And Malchut means... Malchut means... Alchu b'derfateva. They could not escape nature. The Sikrei Hashgacha. And, and God's relationship to them was hidden. And that's called Malchut Shammai. Malchut Shammai means 
we don't always know that it's there. And that's what Rosh Hashanah is about, as you know. Melech al-Kol Ha'aretz. Melech al-Kol Ha'aretz means, I've got to say it. I've got to state it. Because if I don't say it, and I don't state it, and I don't scream it out at the top of my lungs, that I might not know it. I might forget it. The Malchut of Rosh Hashanah is something that we have to declare together. We have to say it as loud as we possibly can. Because Malchut, the Malchut of HaKadosh Baruch Hu is hidden from us. And that's why we have to talk about it. If everybody was walking around hand in hand with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, like Avraham Avinu, or Moshe Rabbeinu, so they wouldn't have to blow a shofar on Rosh Hashanah. What are they blowing a shofar about? They know that. They know what the shofar is telling them. So that when they went from the Midbar, this is like what he says. I'm not telling you anything that I said. They, what did the chief says? The chief knew Kala He knew the Nikolai, he knew the Nistar. And this is how he understands the book of the Barim. He said, the book of the Barim is about a passage, a rite of passage, a passage of rites. He says that when they left Mitzrayim, they lived in the world of Tiferet. Tiferet means clarity, awareness of the presence of God, which means that they were not subject to the wiles of nature. Everything was under control. When you're with HaKadosh Baruch when you're with God, so to speak, there's not going to be an earthquake. I mean, that doesn't make any sense at all. But Eretz Yisrael, Eretz Yisrael is different. Where was God taking them? From the world of Tiferet to the world of Malchut. What does Malchut mean? What does Malchut mean? It doesn't mean. It doesn't mean you're aware of God's kingship. It means you have to make yourself aware of God's kingship. It's not like God comes and taps you on the shoulder all the time and says, God is here. It's you have to tap yourself on the shoulder and remind yourself of Malchut. So you went from Tiferet to Malchut. You went from clarity to hiddenness. That's what the Nitzif says. You went from clarity to hiddenness. And now we're going on. I hope. He says, he says, this change, like when did this happen? When did this happen that B'nai Yisrael went from Teferet to Malchut? It didn't happen when they came to Eretz Yisrael, but it came before they came to Eretz Yisrael. When before they came to Eretz Yisrael? The last year, the last year, the 40th year of their presence in the, in the desert. Shebiyarno beparashat, I'm sorry, beparashat, what is it? Chukat, I'm sorry. Alpi hashanui, hashinui nasu milchamot Yisraelim aknani bin sichon b'derech ha-teva. He says, you know, there's a change. Today, so I want to go through this piece of land that is controlled by Sichon or by Oak. You know what they do? They come to negotiate. They say, let us through. All we want is some water. We're not going to take your land. We're not going to take your stuff. We're not going to do anything. But they negotiate. What is it? So what does the Nazim say? Why are they negotiating? 
Why did they go to? Because they're in a different world. Because if they were in the world of Tiferet, they just marched through. And, 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 and all the people of Sichon would disappear. They'd sort of keel over. It would all be gone. But they weren't in that world. They were in the world where wars are sometimes won and sometimes lost. And you have to prepare yourself properly for fighting the war. He says, that was all B'derech HaTeva. Begam HaMateh Lo Haya Od Biyad Moshe And you know the Mateh, the staff that Moshe Rabbeinu carried around and he went to Mitzrayim, he, he did the staff this way and the staff that way. All of a sudden there was no staff. The staff was put into the Aron HaKodesh. If you remember, at the end of the parasha of Korach, at the end of the parasha, he was de-staffed. He, Moshe Rabbeinu. There was a change in what could be done in the world. Lo yad biyad Moshe, Moshe tami, hela la'et ha-tzorach, l'fiyat karat, Moshe biyad Moshev. And so the staff was not any longer a permanent feature of Moshe Rabbeinu's authority. And the Medrash says, We spoke about this pasuk several weeks ago, but he quotes a Medrash that says, The Sefer זה ספר במדבר שהוא מבדיל בין יוצאי מצרים ובין באי הארץ. So the Medrash says that ויבדל אלוקים בין האור ובין החושך is an ongoing theme in the unfolding history of בני ישראל. And when did this happen? That the light and the dark were differentiated for B'nai Yisrael according to the Midrash it was in the desert it was in the desert because when they left Mitzrayim when they got the Torah they were in the awe in the light and that light meant closeness to God living above nature not being susceptible to the wiles of nature when they came to Eretz Yisrael they were living in a different world. They were living in the world of Malchut, of nature, of having to deal with things. And so when they met up with Sichon and Oak, they started to negotiate. That's what the Nitziv, that's what the Nitziv says. And he says, the halichot yotzei Mitzrayim hayaor hashkachat Hashem mofia leenko that the people who left Mitzrayim saw God in action, every one of them. Shukvod Hashem uachlit habriyah. That's the or. The or is honor and purpose. That's what creation is for the for the or. Masheenkein the halichot. But Eretz Yisrael, everything's covered up. You never know what's going to happen. No matter how many times 
you hear the news about something that happens. And no matter how many times you hear people comment on what it really, really means, you end up not knowing. That's called hashkacha mechusa. Because on the one hand, we believe that God is in charge and that everything that happens, happens because it should happen in some way. And on the other hand, when we try to understand what is happening, we find that we're at a loss. Nothing really makes any sense. And that's Eretz Yisrael. All those of you people come from Chutz Laretz, you know, Chutz Laretz, we were never so interested in all of this. You know, like, so it didn't make sense. Well, it didn't work out. Well, it wasn't so, so uh, exactly as it should be. I don't think we were so impressed by all of that, but in Eretz Yisrael, we're annoyed every day. Every single day. Now, some people are annoyed every day at 6 o'clock in the morning when they hear the news for the first time. And some people are annoyed at 7 o'clock in the morning. And some people are annoyed at 8 o'clock in the morning. But everybody's annoyed. Everybody's annoyed. No one can say, no one can ever say, it's happening the way it should happen. It's, this is the way it should be. I mean, no one. That's called hashkacha mechusa for a religious person. That's called, you know, I can't figure it out. I know that God is doing it, but I can't figure out what exactly is happening. So he says, Among the twelfth he says, it's like when you're going in the dark. It's dark. But sometimes if you really focus and you try very hard, you can see things. Right? So that's how it is. He says, most people are afraid of the dark. Most people are not willing to, uh, uh, to encounter the dark. They, they'll go to sleep. They'll say, I'll wait till it gets light. But some people are able to do that. That means even in Eretz Yisrael, it's possible to understand that the processes come from God. So it's like the light of the lightning at night. It's a flash. Like suddenly you see something. Or suddenly you know something. But it's not true about everyone. It's not like, it's not, go, it's not like going uh, in the daytime. And you know, they, you know, I mean, just there's a halach in the Rambam. The Rambam says at the end of the third paragraph, of Talmud We don't know why. The, you know, the Rambam says all th- all sorts of things about learning Torah, and it's not always clear. It's not always clear to us why the Rambam had to talk and praise learning Torah. See, when it comes to Eretz Yisrael, I mean, I'm just telling you that the Rambam praises Eretz Yisrael. In Hilchot Melachim, 
the Rambam goes out of his way to talk about how the Tanaim and the Moraim loved Eretz Yisrael and they would come and kiss the ground of Eretz Yisrael the Rambam goes at great, at great lengths to explain how much the Tanaim and the Moraim considered that living in Eretz Yisrael was a most wondrous thing but you know that the Rambam did not think that living in Eretz Yisrael was one of the mitzvot of the Torah now it's not obvious what that means what I just said means right? it's not obvious but the Rambam certainly does not include it as a mitzvah he doesn't say that living in Eretz Yisrael is a mitzvah the Rambam as you know was very unhappy about that he thought that living in Eretz Yisrael should be included in the mitzvah, as a mitzvah but I can say that since the Rambam didn't include Eretz Yisrael in a mitzvah, as a mitzvah it makes sense that the Rambam should talk about how, how much everybody loved Eretz Yisrael and how important it was to live in Eretz Yisrael because since it's not a mitzvah you have to get it in some other way right? you have to say something but when it comes to Talmud Torah, that's what we're talking about. When it comes to learning Torah, the rabbi says, it's a mitzvah. Everybody has to learn Torah. So it's not clear why the Rambam has to wax poetic about Torah. That Torah is the greatest, that it's the most wonderful, and it changes everything. I mean, it's not clear why the Rambam has to do that. That bad is saying, we don't like it, we like it. But it's simply, in terms of structure, what's the difference between a mitzvah that the rabbi just says you have to do, and a mitzvah the rabbi has to go out of his way to explain and talk about and, 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 and speak about quality, right? It's not, it's not perfectly clear to us why the rabbi does that. But one of the things that the rabbi says about Talmud which is really hard to understand, is that a person's a person learns the most Torah at night. That's what the Rambam says. And then he goes on, I mean, it's rather a long, a long halakha. And the Rambam says, the Rambam says that at night is when you really can learn Torah the best. Even though the Rambam also says that we take seriously the Pesach in Yoshua. The Pesach in Yoshua, Vagita Bo Yomam Valayla. We take seriously the fact that we should learn Torah both in the daytime and in the nighttime. Right? So that means whatever, however your schedule is. You remember the drama thought that for regular people like us, that you should, uh, you should uh, divide up your day. Right? Divide up your day, and your day should include three hours of labor, of work, where you'd be able to support yourself, and nine hours of Torah learning. Now this is like the lowest, the lowest Jew. You know, the simplest Jew is uh, works for three hours and learns Torah for nine hours. Then the Rambam said, Well, a part of the nine hours have to be during the daytime, and part of them have to be the nighttime. And then the Rambam said, But you should know. I mean, because it's not clear how much you should do in the day and how much you should do in the night. So the Rambam says. Look, I want you to know that if you pack it in at night, let's say you do eight hours of 55 minutes at night, then you've got, you know, that's the refine. You have five minutes you do during the day. And then you do three hours of work, and then you go to sleep. That's how the Ramam understood the best possible deal. 
Tzvarim. So it's true that the Rabbah gets out of the Gemara. The Gemara says that the Gemara Kedushin says that the Talmud Torah at night is the, the night time is the best possible time to learn. Right? So you have to think to yourself, like, well, why is nighttime better than daytime? Why is that? So usually uh, people would say, well, you know, it's about less noise in the streets and the cars, uh, the cars don't uh, make as much uh, of a racket and the kids are all asleep and the, uh, the drug addicts uh, are, are out being drug addicts someplace. So, so nighttime, you know, there's nothing happening. No one's knocking on your door. No one's coming to fix your phone. Nobody's coming to deliver and deliver it. See, at the nighttime, you get neko neko from the nighttime. That's one way of explaining it. Another way of explaining it is what the Nitzib says that the nighttime is a time that you get to see the light of the Torah more easily. So when you're learning Torah, when you're learning Torah and you see something, you see it really brightly. It's, uh, it, it has an impact on you. And that works better at night than during the day. That's what the Rambam, that's what the Rambam said. And that's what the Nitziv said. He says, you know, when you live in Eretz Yisrael, things are not always clear. But sometimes, because you're like sort of walking in the darkness, but sometimes there's a bolt of lightning. And that lightning lights up the whole sky, if only for a moment. And during that moment, you see things. You know, it suddenly makes sense. But if the lightning would strike during the day, okay, if it doesn't hit you, it doesn't make that much of an impression. You know, the lightning, you know, you have to make a bracha, but it's not so impressive. You see lightning at night? That's really something. That lights up the whole sky, if only for a short period of time. So what did the, what did the Nitziv argue? The Nitziv said, listen, B'nai Yisrael, B'nai Yisrael went from its shrine, which was total darkness, to Eretz Yisrael, which was the kind of darkness that created a challenge. If I did in Mitzrayim, the situation was hopeless. I mean, the chief doesn't say that, but we're like, trying to kind of add a little bit. We say that in Mitzrayim, the Jews were in the Memteshari Tumah. Being in the Memteshari Tumah, I know exactly what that means. I hope that I haven't had that experience as yet. But being in the Memteshari Tumah means that they didn't get it. They didn't know what was going on. They didn't know what God was doing. They were totally disconnected. And they went from the Mentet Shari Tuma, according to the Nitziv, to the great light, Tiferet, Torah, Me'al HaTeva. That's where they went to in the desert. They went to this radical change. And that radical change itself created some kind of doubt, confusion, and missteps that led B'nai Israel to do things that they should not have done like the Chaita Eid. And finally, in some Hegelian way, you know, the Hegelian balance comes in, they come to Eretz Yisrael, where on the one hand, the light of God's presence is not obvious. On the other hand, they now know that it could be obvious to them. That it was an avoda, that it was something that had to do 
And according to the Nitziv, this transformation is partially reflected in the Pekudim, in the counting of B'nai Yisrael. Because when do you count B'nai Yisrael? When there's something special about them. Not when they've gone through a numerical change, but when they've gone through a significant change in conception, where as a nation they're able to say, there's God. Or as a nation they're able to say, we have to look for God. So at the time of Yitzhak Mitzrayim and Matan Torah, they were the nation basking in the light. And so it's reasonable that they should be born when they're about to enter Eretz Yisrael, they're the nation that lives within nature, but has that knowledge, has the knowledge that they could, that they could see the light if they tried, if they worked hard at it. And so Rokham Chazal, and Chazal said that the book of Midbar is not about Korach, it's not about Bilam, it's not about the Chait of Moshe and Aaron, not about any of those things. All those things are important. And we can learn from them. And we do learn from them. But that's not the subject of the book of Bamidbar. The subject of the book of Bamidbar is the nature of the Jewish people. That they had a nature. They had a collective kind of a attitude about things. And that attitude that they had was developed in the Midbar in the light, in the Tiferet, in the Torah with Moshe Rabbeinu, and then maintained residually into the new world of B'nai Yisrael, which was Teva and nature and Eretz Yisrael, and a lack of clarity to a certain extent about God's presence. And so he goes on and says, he goes on and says, line 15, and this distinction that I have described, the Nitzv says, is reflected in the two countings of the Yisrael. And they uh, uh, they reflect the difference in the way of Am Yisrael. Mishum Hashi, the Pama Rishona Hayalti Meded Had Galim Midalid Ruchot Kemerkavalashkina. And he says, you know, the first time Moshe Abedu counted B'nai Yisrael, he counted them by the Galim. They were they camped in a square around the Mishkan. On each side there were three tribes, one dominant one and two others, right, on each side. And therefore, at that time, I mean, why were they counted in that way? Why were they counted out like uh, according to birth? Reuben and Shimon and Levi, right? Why were they counted the way they were born? Why were they counted the way that they kept? Because at that time, they were Kimer Kavala Shechina. This is a concept that the Ramban 
speaks about on several occasions. Merkava Shechina. Merkava is a chariot. And Shechina is Shechina. And it was that somehow the idea that God has a special place in this world and that that place is, is created by people who are appreciative, so to speak, of God's being in the world, and even though God is every place, but God is also someplace, right? That's all someplace. And the place where God is, is in the Merkava, in the chariot. And who makes the chariot? Am Yisrael. Okay, so here we have it. Here we have it, so to speak, that Moshe Rabbeinu, I'm sorry, that, that the Nitziv says, the Chazal say, that this change was undergone by B'nai Yisrael, and that's why, and that's why uh, you have two countings. The second counting takes part of the parasha of Pinchas, which is our parasha, so I want to just tell you something that I thought about on the way here. And since I thought it on the way here, it's not on the sheet. Because even though I know you can do that, but I don't have that equipment. I mean, I don't know how you can do it, but I mean, I'm sure you can. So you know, at the end of the parish of Balak, so you have to just listen. At the end of the parish of Balak, there's a story about the Midianite women coming to seduce the men of Israel and get them to be idolatrous. And then Moshe Rabbeinu turns to God, what should I do? And God says, something. Do something. And tells him what to do. And then there's a story about Cosby and Zimri ben Salu, right? There's a kind of a story like things are, are, are suddenly terrible. Things are suddenly terrible. And Pinchas ben Elazar Kohen goes to Moshe Rabbeinu and says, we got to do something. Look what's going on. And this is already stage two, right? Stage one was Moshe Rabbeinu went to God and said, well, we got to do something. I mean, this is terrible. So God said, okay, go ahead, do it. You kill them. Kill all the people who are doing this. Then something happened and Pinchas comes to Moshe Rabbeinu and says, we've got to do something. Look what's going on out there. So you would say, you would think, what, is, what should be the response? Whether you never saw the Chomish before. What should be the response of Moshe Rabbeinu? Okay, Pinchas, we're doing it. We're dealing with it. Right? I've got my men out there killing everybody who did this. But what's the problem? Just tell them the guy's name and his address and we'll go kill him also. What does Moshe Rabbeinu say? Yeah? I'll do something. What should we do? So then what does Pinchas say to, to Moshe Rabbeinu? He says, Moshe Rabbeinu, this is part of action. There's a halacha, boil as Arabis, kanoim, oigim bo. What does that mean? What, do, what, what does it mean? Boil as Arabis, if somebody has sexual relations with an Arabis, kanoim pogim. What's kanoim? Who are the kanoim? Kanoim are guys who are like highly charged with adrenaline. You know, like uh, they're confident to sit still. Kanoim? Pogimbo. What does Kanoim Pogimbo mean? They kill him. It'd be just what you thought. But what does it really mean? What does Kanoim Pogimbo really mean? Kanoim Pogimbo means there's no due process. You don't arrest him. You see somebody doing some Avera. So you say, you don't go and arrest the guy. 
and say, uh, and say, uh, listen, you know, uh, you, do you want a lawyer? Because if you want a lawyer, well, we'll get you a lawyer. And, uh, and you know, I mean, do you have character witnesses who say that I'll tell you who did this, you're really a nice fellow? We don't do any of that. Tanoim Kodemilko means no due process. So that's what, that's what Pinchot said to Moshe Rabbeinu. Pinchot said to Moshe Rabbeinu, we got to kill him. So Moshe Rabbeinu said, look, if you think we got to kill him, so you go kill him. <coughs> what do you want from me? Now let's look at the words. Now that I've given you this introduction, in my kind of uh, a playful uh, uh, rendition, listen to the Psukim. The Psukim say this, Right? That's the story. You don't need any more story. Right? The people who write novels can write the novel that's behind the pasuk. But this is enough for us. We have a, everybody has enough imagination. But they had an agenda. And the agenda was that they're going to convince the people, not just, to, oh, not only to do the Aveira, but to entice them to idolatry. That's what it says in the Pasuk. And this was why Bilam, who was unsuccessful in what he was hired to do, suddenly came up with this brilliant idea that we spoke about last week briefly. Now look. Vayitzomed Yisrael about Pa'or. Yitzamed Yisrael is a word that describes closeness. The people of Israel were close to this idolatry. They didn't just do it. It wasn't like they were paying lip service. But they were really into it. Yisrael means, God got angry at Yisrael, but it really means that God decided to punish the people. That's what Vayichar asked doesn't mean God got angry, but it means God decided to do or to punish the Jews who were involved. By Hashem and Moshe. Here's the punishment. Kachet kol ha'am. And Rashi explains it. Kachet kol ha'am. otam l'ashem neged ha'shemesh. V'yashov charod af Hashem Yisrael. So go out there and kill all these people. Kill all these people, and then God will be pacified. Can't have in the middle of the Israel, you know, all, all that, all going around and, and worshipping idols. Can't be. So now listen. This is called a non-sequitur. And Moshe Rabbeinu spoke to the judges of Israel. Judges of Israel? Where did they come from? The previous person. Take the leaders of the people and kill the people who are involved in idolatry. He didn't do that. If you look at Rashi, you'll see the Rashi calls them Dayanim, judges. So Moshe Rabbeinu went to the judges of Israel and said, And he said to them, 
You have to kill the people who are nitzmatim lebalpoor. But how did they kill them? First, they judged them. And you know how you judge things? You know how Jews judge things? You need witnesses. And it's a process. So they got this guy who did it, or this woman who served Pa'or in one way or the other, and then they took them to court. And they said, we need, now we need two witnesses. Two witnesses say, you did this, and you did that. And what, the witnesses are verified. And you know, if you learn the Gemara's in Sanhedrin, verifying witnesses is not a simple or an obvious thing. And finally, at the end, at the end, they would kill them. They would carry out, they would carry out the, uh, the punishment. And then the story is, ish, But, Allah came this guy, who's not named in the parasha of Balak. And he did this terrible thing, Le'enei Moshe Rabbeinu. Which is a terrible thing because he he denied the authority of Moshe Rabbeinu. Now, what was terrible about it? What was terrible about it was not that he did it, but what's terrible about it was that he could not be punished straight away because Moshe Rabbeinu had made a commitment to do process. Shoftim. They would bring him to the Shoftim. And as they were bringing him to court, he would be laughing all the way to court. And who knows if he wouldn't be able to bribe the potential witnesses. And so, and he killed him. And Rashi said, that Pinchas ben Elazar ben Aaron Kohen came to Moshe Rabbeinu and he said, and what does Kanaim Pogimbo I told you mean? No due process. You don't wait. Sometimes you don't wait for the system. You don't wait for the illegal system to have an effect. Moshe Rabbeinu was paralyzed because Moshe Rabbeinu said, We have to do it with the legal system. Having learned in the sea, what does it mean? What did Moshe Rabbeinu do? Moshe Rabbeinu was the leader of B'nai Israel, and here we are at the end of the 40 years of the sojourn in the desert. And Moshe Rabbeinu says, you know, this is terrible. They are, they, they've done this terrible thing. The men of Israel, the women of Midyar, the Avodizara, but it's a terrible thing. But I, Moshe Rabbeinu, am going to solve this problem and prepare them for Andre to Eretz Yisrael at the same time. I'm going to show them that the Torah demands mishpat, judgment, and justice. And whether this is what HaKadosh Baruch Hu told you to do originally or not, is something that you'll decide when you're eating chont on Shabbos. But it seems to me that Moshe Rabbeinu was exercising his position as the leader of Israel to tell them, Rabbosai, it doesn't matter how bad it is, it doesn't matter how difficult our position is, we have to follow the dictates of the Torah that demands 
Mishpat. And Moshe Rabbeinu said, I'm no longer the Moshe Rabbeinu with the staff. I'm no longer able to wave my hand and then automatically everybody who is guilty dies. The Chidush, the novel notion in the story of Pinchas is that Am Yisrael pitted against Am Yisrael had to take responsibility and had to use the courts in order to punish the people who were not who were not deserving of living within the context of the Yisrael. Pinchas ben Elazar came to Moshe Rabbeinu and he said, Moshe Rabbeinu, sometimes there are exceptions. Sometimes due process is going to inhibit us, is going to hinder the process. And Moshe Rabbeinu said, okay, but I can't do that. Because I'm Moshe Rabbeinu, I'm the leader, and I'm teaching B'nai Yisrael about Mishpat. And if I would do what you suggest, then the lesson would be lost. The notion of Mishpat would be denied by B'nai Yisrael. And so, Moshe Rabbeinu said to Pinchas, if you think that that's the halacha, you do it. Because I can't compromise the position that I established for B'nai Yisrael at this time. So the Nitziv said that B'nai Yisrael went through a change and he speaks about it in very noble terms about light and darkness and about the light within the darkness and about Yitziat Mitzrayim and going into Eretz Yisrael. But he says that all this happened in the 40th year and I think that it's true that the story of Pinchas can be included in this change. But if you look at the last paragraph, near Ed Al line twenty one, Amru Chazal, in the Gemara and Shabbat, the Vahibin saw a Roman Sefer Bethayat Smoke, where Lamdenu, Vasherbo had Chalat, as she knew he had Yamin, And you all know this. If you turn over the page, you see the Pasuk and everybody knows everybody should know because it's in the printed versions of the Tanachim and the Chumash and the Kral Kedolot that these two Pasukim are preceded and followed by a Nun Hafucha by a Nun that's backwards why a Nun? and why Hafucha? I also don't know that, but I know that the Gemara says that these two psukim are a sefer b'fnei atzmo, that they are a separate book, so that the book of Bamidbar, which we usually call one book, Chazal thought of it in terms of, of three books, because after Vahid, after Vahid and Soharon, Vahid Amkim mit B'nei Yisrael began to realize that they would not be able to maintain this connection to clarity, to Tiferet, to Torah, and that they were destined to go to Eretz Yisrael where things were not quite as they imagined they might be. And because of that, 
because of that, Chazal understood, right, they understood because of the Kikudim, but they understood also because of the three books, the three books in the, in the Torah, in the book of Bamidbar, that B'nai Yisrael were going through a prime, primary change, a, a significant change in the way, in the way they, they, that they lived. And so you look back at the, the, the Nitziv, let's go back, we're on line uh, 22, key at the end of the line, He says, at that time, punishment came to B'nai Yisrael immediately. Now what does he mean, I think? No due process. When you live with God, then you understand that everything is clear including whether somebody is guilty or somebody is innocent. When you live in a world where God is obstructing for you, then all we have is the due process of one kind or another. And as you know, and as you know, we can argue forever about whether they should have done it or they shouldn't have done it whether they, we got enough out of the deal or we didn't get enough out of the deal. Whether dead Jewish bodies are worth live uh, uh, terrorists or not. Uh, that's, that's the way it is for us. There's a lack of clarity. There's a lack of clarity. In that lack of clarity decisions have to make be made and the decisions never produce clarity they only produce decisions and so when there was clarity the people who sinned in the desert were destroyed immediately by the hand of God that's called clarity but when clarity came to an end at the time of Pinchas ben Elazar ben Aaron HaKohen, then due process came to be. And Moshe Rabbeinu was the one who promoted the due process because he knew that he, Moshe Rabbeinu, was no longer capable of producing that clarity for the, for the Jewish people. So it's interesting to note that far from feeling badly about the fact that we never really know what should be going on here in Eretz Yisrael, the fact that we bungle along and somehow still it all seems to work out remarkably. Whereas on the one hand, we know that we never know. And on the other hand, it's easy enough to imagine that the hand of HaKadosh Baruch Hu is involved in the steps that we keep taking, all of which seem to be to our advantage. Have a good chance.